Actually, I usually drink water and eat on mic. Hey, Chris. Good how to are see you. you. Likewise. Yeah, I'm, great. I'm great. How are you? Well, sun is coming out. I'm feeling, uh, I'm having a pity party for myself because I teach at 9.30 a.m. And yeah, I woke up and yeah, I know, real, real, real rough, real rough life. And it's rainy and I had to walk across no. campus. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling sorry for myself that I have like basic creature comfort um, um, disequilibrium. You know, it makes it, it it always blows my mind that universities don't have golf carts for the poor beleaguered professors who want to go from point A to point B. They've got golf carts for everyone else. They've got those little scooters that everybody's on roadless running me over. Well, guess we're talking to today. Yeah, we're talking to uh, my very good friend who I had the privilege of, of interviewing twice for a job here at University of Alabama. So Dr. Diane Tober, actually, she's right down the hall. She's going to be online here in just a second, though. Interviewed her for this, this job, uh, and then the pandemic broke out. We had to cancel the search, but she came to campus, gave a great talk, and then the next year when we got it rebooted, she had to give the whole talk again, but I think it was a Zoom interview. So she got to come and interview here twice and thank god Amazing. we offered her the job wouldn't that be shitty to have someone interview twice and then give the job to someone else so diane tober is a medical anthropologist with a focus on biocultural aspects of health gender and sexuality and i'm not going to read through the whole blurb i'm going to say that she's got tons of funding she studies sperm donation and egg donation so reproductive ecology biomedicine the biosocial like it's really, really your reproductive health right shoved up the crack of the biomedical industrial complex is basically mm -hmm. her research. Yeah. Amazing. Her book is called Romancing the Sperm, Shifting Biopolitics and the Making of Modern Families came out in 2018. So we're going to ask her a little bit about that. But she shifted, as I said, from looking at sperm donation to essentially women selling their eggs to get through college and all kinds of stuff like that. So are you ready? I am so ready. I'm really excited. Uh, Malika, Diane, Diane, Malika. So nice to, nice meet, you. to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. And we already, I, we already, we already introduced you. So I'm going to let Malika ask the first question and mute myself. Diane, we're so excited to have you on here. And your work sounds amazing, and it is long-spanning and covers such an important area of human functioning, of course, human reproduction. So tell us about your life and how you came to academia. Well, um, actually, what happened, how I got interested in anthropology dates back to my first one of my first medical anthropology courses that I was taking at, at the time at San Jose State University. And I was sitting in class one day. And all of a sudden, I just had this epiphany, you know, sort of the light bulb above the head kind of thing. I mean, literally just like that. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm going to I'm going to become a medical anthropologist. I'm, I'm going to go someday go to Iran to study 
uh, fertility issues in an Iranian village. <laughs> and I'm going to go to the UC Berkeley program because I knew that at the time that was one of the best programs around. And so it's this was like 1986 and I was, no, 1984. And I was in my 20s and I was like, you know, mid 20s at that point. And it took me a while to sort of wrap my head around what I wanted to do. And sort of once I had that insight, um, all of a sudden I was just, you know, on a path and I just kept going and haven't stopped since. So it was really my first med anthro course at, at San Jose State University that got me on that path. And then later when I was at, when I, you know, many years later, I, you know, I changed universities. I went to another, I transferred, I went and got my master's at University of Hawaii. And then I finally felt like I was ready to take on, you know, the big B, you know, Berkeley, which seemed really daunting at the time. I thought, oh, wow, could I ever, would I ever fit in there? Would I ever be good enough, you know, kind of thing. And so I was a little scared about it at first. And then um, I finally, you know, mustered up the courage, applied, got in, um, was like, you know, on the moon. And when I was there, I was working with one of my committee members was Gay Becker. And she had started, she was one of the first anthropologists really to approach infertility and had gone through infertility herself and and remained involuntarily childless for you know for the remainder of her life it was working with her that i sort of steered into this work on assisted reproduction and sperm donation at the time she was doing a she and a bob noctegal an endocrinologist there but they were working on a project looking at gender differences in response to infertility and people were calling up to sign up for the for the research but it was the, the NIH grant was specifically designed for looking at heterosexual married couples, right? So, you know, gender differences, male, female, married, that's what infertility meant at the time. If you were single, you were not infertile because that was the definition of having to be married, trying for a year and more and um, being unsuccessful. And so at the same time, single women and lesbian couples were calling up to volunteer for the project and were being turned away. And I was like, well, why are, here's people who want to participate and the idea to turn somebody away who wants to share their story, it, it, it made me feel like, okay, this is something that I have to do. People want to share their story. Not only is it an interesting project anthropologically, but also I felt bad for, <laughs> for turning people away because they didn't fit some criteria. You know, they're all, this is a group of people who are already marginalized and they're being further marginalized by the, by the scope of the study. So um, that's kind of how I started on sperm donation among single women and lesbian couples. You, you dated yourself, but I, I had no, you, you look so young. So everybody who's, who's listening, Diane, like, looks like she's 40. What that tells me is that, you know, what I know, which is, I remember the test tube babies, right? I remember when that was how we described reproductive endocrinology. And I, and I went through it later, right? So I have personal experience as well. And, and what you're talking about with, with the stories uh, really resonates to me, but, but first, what really, really strikes me in the opening of your book is is really the the neo-colonial construction of family through who gets access. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sperm bank, right? We, we've all heard of it, but now that when I was reading your book, I'm like, wait, that didn't exist as a thing maybe 30 years ago. And, and now I remember going to college trying to figure out how I could sell sperm at the sperm bank to make money as a 20-year-old. So so connect the dots for us if you could and tell us how this industry sort of grew up. Well, yeah, I mean, the sperm banking industry really got started around the late 70s, 
late 70s, early 80s. And, and I'm speaking specifically at this point about California, because that's sort of where I was based while I was doing the bulk of this research. Obviously, it's a global thing, but some of the first sperm banks really emerged in California. Initially, they were part of private clinics or private clinics would have a sperm donation program, but they would use, use fresh sperm. And then when the AIDS crisis hit around, you know, early 80s, um, the idea of using fresh sperm and he, at, the, at that point just it wasn't a good idea, obviously, because of the high risk um, of using fresh. And so sperm banks really started coming into play in the early 80s in the midst of the AIDS crisis, um, because then you could quarantine, freeze and quarantine the sperm, retest the donor and make sure that you had, um, you know, sperm that was from a person who was healthy at the time. At the time, also, the sperm banks banned anybody, anybody who had sex with men, uh, men who had sex with men from becoming sperm donors. Now is a questionable policy because there's other ways of, of, of screening people to make sure that they're healthy, regardless of sexual orientation. But in, in the meantime, in the, the Bay Area, especially the Sperm Bank of California was one of the sper first sperm banks uh, around that offered, especially, and it was especially geared towards single women and lesbian couples because so many of the private clinics and so many of the sperm banks that existed at that time would not provide sperm to women who were not married. And so the Sperm Bank of California was founded by predominantly lesbian feminist women who really wanted to be of service to women. At the same time, in the early 80s, the Herman J. Mueller Repository of Germinal Choice existed down in Escondido, California, and that was the so-called Genius Sperm Bank. But they would not provide uh, sperm to non-married heterosexual couples either. You, couples that would go there would have to pass a screening process as well to make sure that they were married, to make sure that they were educated um, and that they would be good families for this so-called genius sperm. But yeah, it was really in the in the early 80s and then really started taking off in the mid 80s. Then all of a sudden you started having, um, for example, California Cryobank started providing a sperm. It was a sperm bank initially geared towards heterosexual couples, but then started relaxing criteria for who could receive sperm. You know, I feel like I'm coming at this from a very different perspective. I'm a millennial. I just turned 30. And so these questions of, of reproductive health are on my mind. I, I feel you, you mentioned this in your book, like the yeah. graduate student life and you are like in school, in school, in school, in school. And then you are trying to have a a, a personal life and maybe start a family. And it's all intersecting with these questions on reproductive health. But also, like the world as a as a thirty year old um, yeah. reproductive female, my life is very different than it, what it would have been in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. So, you know, just this past December, uh, President Biden had signed the Respect for Marriage Act, protecting interracial and uh, LGBTQ couples. And I feel like, you know, these conversations of who gets access they become right. really different. So I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on you know, how your work has evolved since then. Yeah, I mean, the, the conversations are different, but they also keep repeating, right? So you still have these narratives in, in the political scene where people are still trying to question rights of people to, to marry, rights of people to, which people have the rights to become parents and which people do not. And, you know, reproductive discourse still permeates every single aspect of, poli of, the, of the political stage. And so in the one, on the one case, Yes, you know, we're post-Obergefell. Yes, 
people have the right to marry. Yes, Joe Biden just signed this legislation uh, ensuring people's rights. And at the same time, at any point, there can be a threat that turns everything back around again. The, the laws are different. There's more flexibility. There's more rights now and so on. But as we've seen with, with Roe and the Dobbs decision, we cannot take our rights for granted. We can lose them at any second. And that's one of the things that I find so disturbing is that really we're still having these conversations 30 years later. You know, that to me is just like, can't we move beyond some of these, these debates and, and move forward and put these things behind us? And that's one of the things I find as an anthropologist, it's like mind boggling that, that we can still have some of these same discussions so many years later. Um, you know, Dan Quayle just comes up in a new form. The whole Murphy Brown debate about, you know, demonizing single motherhood. It just comes up in a new form, um, even though we've had modern families and everybody loves modern families. But it doesn't necessarily mean they want gay people to have the right to have kids. right? Yeah. So that's one thing that I find mind boggling. But. To the question of being 30 and an academic and a graduate student and thinking about your reproductive possibilities and timeline and so on. In my case, and I talk about this in the book, in my case, I was 29 turning 30 and interviewing somebody who was 35, just five years older than me. And she had been uh, going through the process, the infertility process with her husband for five years. And in that interview, she literally changed my life because she's flipped the switch on me and that started asking me the questions like, well, when was the last time you went to the doctor? How do you know what, if you're still fertile, you know, <laughs> you need to go to the doctor right away, Diane, cause you don't want to be me in five years. And so that here I was doing infertility research and it hit a panic button in me. So I went to the doctor, found out I had, you know, not to get into too much <laughs> personal detail, but it's my book anyway, found out I had, bilateral dermoid cyst had to have an ovary removed and all of a sudden my reproductive timeline was just thrown in my face in a way that I had never anticipated it would happen. It changed the way I approached my career and family building at the time because we didn't have egg freezing back then and in some ways I'm glad that we didn't because if I had to be facing the decision of oh do I pay ten thousand twenty thousand dollars to do X number of cycles to freeze my eggs and then maybe use them later, maybe not. I think that would be too much. It's a lot for women or, or people who are reproductively female to um, kind of take in and think about, especially when you're financially strapped as a student, who's going to pay for egg freezing, right? If I hadn't had to really sort of face that timeline, I probably would have made different reproductive choices and possibly not had the children I have right now. For me, at the time at Berkeley, where we had where we had subsidized childcare and I had family housing, mm. it made a lot of sense to have kids while I was in graduate school. But, I really enjoy that part of the book, and and I, I say that both as a parent who and someone who just wrote a book and did did the same thing. Like I found it much richer for that, and that that anecdote that you just shared really jumped out at me for, yeah. for those reasons. And I I wonder too. I mean, I. I remember that does Murphy Brown stuff when I first got married right before I had my kids through reproductive assistance mm -hmm. and now I'm reading your book and they're in college so I'm, I'm feeling some circularity yeah. to that and also in, in reading your work right which which follows a similar arc and I gotta say like the, the the piece that strikes me the most that comes out of both your book and the articles I think is 
the intersection of emotionality and then the things that everybody's doing. So the feeling of an elevator button mm-hmm. right, described and, and nobody who hasn't read the book would know what we're talking about, but it's someone who is, is involved in this process, sperm donation um, and trying to have a child. And I have very, very strong memories for the sake of like not giving anyone graphic imagery to have to live with today. I won't share it. But having gone through reproductive assistance, those are the whole experience that's frozen in my mind. I'll tell you one really quick story because this was creepy. We're sitting there with a reproductive endocrinologist, and they're telling us that they wrote a screenplay about reproductive endocrinologists sell, uh, making a deal with the devil to implant the seed and that they were going to sell this screenplay to Tony and Ridley Scott and I'd actually talked to him about it. We're like, oh, my God. They're like, you guys seem pretty cool. So we, they're they telling us this. We're like, yeah, wow. not that cool. We're, yeah. not, we're not that cool. Please don't tell us this story right now. Right, right. But but, but it really strikes me. And so I, uh, I, I want to get more into that. But I wonder if we could pivot to the Ovado Project where so much of this emotionality. And, and I saw you give two job talks and yeah. really, really delivered the goods on this. So I'd really love to hear about some of the emotionality with the egg donation stuff. Right. Well, I mean, and just just to follow up on what you were just saying, when it comes to these reproductive things, you know, sperm donation, egg donation, fertility, it's all so deeply embodied. My experience with losing an ovary, and and I was about as close to to infertility as as one can get without having to cross that bridge, you know, in terms of my own reproduction, and and everything is just so tangible, like you can feel. When you go through something like that, you can feel and sense certain things in your life in different in that you wouldn't have otherwise. You know, like you can feel the absence of your ovary, even though you can't, right? Or you can feel like the elevator button or or what you were talking about. But yes, yeah, switching to the Ovato project with the egg donors, you know, a lot of these people who provide eggs, you know, are eighteen to twenty-five or so years old. And they haven't necessarily really grasped all the all the potential ramifications of of providing eggs yet medically emotionally physically and even thinking down the road in terms of like what does that mean to the people who are receiving her eggs what does that mean to the child that is conceived from her eggs who may or may not be able to have contact with her at some point in the future and then for the women who end up you know with medical harm and and many do there's the notion of oh crap, did I screw up my own fertility because I donated eggs, right? And so there's multiple le- levels of emotion and, and, and tangibility and meaning that uh, sort of evolve over time is what I'm seeing with the egg donors in my study. And just a really quick follow-up. So, so to unpack that, what's, what's the incentive and what is the, the medical process that these women are going through so that listeners can understand the impact? The incentive usually is a, like you said, when you were in, in uh, college, you know, a donor sees an ad in their college uh, online, uh, in a college, um, you know, in the bathroom stall, <laughs> you know, egg donors needed, you know, earn 10 grand. Or some of them say egg donors needed earn up to 48 grand, right? But that's, but they don't know that that's over six cycles. That's not just in one shot. And so they call, they sign up, they have maybe student loans, they have tuition to pay. So there's a huge financial incentive. Many of them, uh, by the time they donate, have a high uh, student loans, uh, med- uh, 
like I said, tuition and other kinds of debt. So they're thinking, okay, this is going to be a way to relief, to find some relief from that debt and maybe earn a, have a little money on the side. And so they call, they go through the screening process to find out, you know, their age, family history, any history of genetic diseases, alcoholism, substance issues, et cetera. Um, they go through the initial screening process. Then they go through a medical screening process to make sure that they, they have enough eggs, that they're healthy, et cetera, et cetera. And then once a person sort of signs on the dotted line to become an egg donor, and once they're matched with an intended parent, then the donor will take hormone injections for several weeks to get those ovaries, those follicles and the ovaries to produce more eggs. So normally in a monthly cycle, um, a person will produce a single egg cell. That, that will be lost in menstruation, right? When you're taking fertility drugs, that's giving enough of the hormones, the follicle-stimulating hormones, to all those follicles in the ovary. So that ovary will might produce, say, 20 eggs or so rather than the normal one. 20 come to maturity or so. So most clinics are aiming for about 20, but I've heard a range for about six to as high as about 82 in a single cycle. And that is a huge amount of eggs to have in your ovary. And That's insane. Malika and I are both just like, our jaws are dropping and we're oh shitting. Yeah. Oh my God. Right. And, and, and like, I think this is probably going to go back to a question you might already answer, but do these women or I guess reproductively female people who are going in for these donations do they have any idea that this is what they're getting themselves into? No, <laughs> they don't really know. Okay. So usually, and I will, I, I will say there's in my whole study out of 300, let's see 400 or so people who took the survey, there's about five who identify, who identified as gender nonconforming and the rest identified as, as gender conforming women. That's a whole other issue is like who gets screened in and who gets screened out. But uh, <laughs> we'll leave that for another conversation potentially. But yeah, so when a donor signs up to donate, before she goes to the medical process for the first time, she's told something along the lines of, we're going to aim for about 15 to 20 eggs. Um, you might be a little bit uncomfortable. There is a risk for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, but it's very, very low. It hardly ever happens. And they're reassured that the medical risks are very low that they're probably going to be producing about 20 eggs and maybe they'll have to take a day off of work. So that's sort of like, that's sort of the best case scenario in this process. However, what I've heard happen a lot is, you know, women, some women are just quote unquote high producers. That's how they refer to them in the clinical practice. Oh, she's a high producing donor. She responds aggressively to the medications. The, do the doctor might see say 20 follicles developing but when they give them the hormones, what one donor told me, for example, her doctor told her that her ovaries lit up like a Christmas tree. Right. Let's talk about those narratives. Right, Chris? <laughs> you know and so sometimes that happens. Now, in most cases, a doctor who's going to be more conservative will say, oh, wow, she's producing a lot of eggs. That's not safe. I'll, I'll, I'll pull back her dosages, let her, maybe let her coast for a while so that all those eggs don't come to maturity. They, some doctors will try to manage it so that she doesn't produce 40, 50 eggs at that donation cycle. But others, you know, there's a lot of pressure to get more eggs, especially when you start having 
the rise of egg banks. Now that we have vitrification, there's sort of a tendency to you know, think, okay, the, the more the merrier, so to speak. If you're just trying to match a donor with a single intended parent, there's not necessarily as much impetus to get higher quantities of eggs. But when you're freezing them and banking them and selling them in batches, as a lot of practices do, you know, that, that's more financial gain from that. So um, donors don't always necessarily know going into it the first time that these are possibilities about 15% of the donors in my study have been, have had severe ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and ended up in the hospital. Donors are told it's less than 1%. I've had four donors in my study that almost died. They were in critical condition in the hospital. And uh, one was actually pronounced clinically dead and resuscitated. And so these are some of the things that people aren't told about the process. It's just, there is a risk. It is a medical process that there are short-term complications and we still don't even know what the long-term complications are. Those are the worst case scenarios. You know, their best case scenarios is worst case scenarios and there's everything in between. I mean, talk about, talk about capitalism in the worst possible way. Yeah. Jeez. And I'm actually so writing I, about I'm that really, <laughs> I love that. I mean, yeah. I, I, I love that you're writing about it because it's so horrible. <laughs> yeah. What was interesting to me in all this too is that when it comes to egg donation, okay, we have most egg donors or in these egg donor databases, they have their photos. They might have bikini shots. They'll have like a video of them turning 360 degrees on a pedestal dressed in like a, a tank top and, and yoga pants. Um, they'll have all this information about them, these narratives of the donors, right, which sperm donors do too. And there's also a, a tiered pricing. So some, some women are paid dramatically more than others, depending upon education, depending upon race. So you have this hyper-capitalism, hyper sort of model industry, modeling industry flavor to it to a degree that you absolutely do not get with sperm donation. And so like one of the big questions is, to me is that, why is it that people who use sperm donors very rarely, if ever get to see even a single photo, or if they do childhood photos. And yet when it comes to egg donation, we have these ridiculous standards of beauty. Sperm donors pass on looks just like egg donors do, right? But egg donors are held to this much higher higher sta standard of, of quote-unquote beauty and usually within this Western model of what beauty means. It's a very narrowly defined and it's uh, very capitalized. You, you describe this in the book as folk genetics or folk eugenics, really, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it sounds like, I mean, it doesn't sound like you just said it, it's way more off the chain in terms of like how amplified it is egg donation right and right. and most of our listeners are human bio association so they're going to hopefully filter this but let's let's just say it outright what's the scientific basis of this folk eugenics they're doing is there any validity to how these choices are going to impact the outcomes of their children well, I mean, that's a, that's a really good, a really good question. I mean, some things, yes, and some things, no. I mean, when it comes to attractiveness, sperm donors and egg donors should be on equal footing when it comes to, to, to attractiveness. If we get video, uh, visual information on egg donors, why wouldn't you get visual information on sperm donors, right? Yet sperm donors are held to the intelligence standard 
of, oh, yeah, I, want, I want a medical doctor. Whereas egg donors are, are held to the look standard. And if you add intelligence on top of that, that's just icing on the cake. So, so it really plays into sort of these, these cultural perceptions of what's important in a gendered way. And at the same time, there are other things. You know, for example, I interviewed a genetics counselor once uh, from the film that I'm working on. And, and she explained to me that people, intended parents, would much rather have a donor with a family history of cancer than a family history of ADHD because ADHD is going to affect the parenting experience, whereas cancer's down the road and they're not going to have to worry about it. <laughs> That's like, horrible. Oh, my God. If somebody, you know, I'll disclose, because I talk about it in public, I have ADHD. I was like, I would much rather have ADHD, even at my age, than, than any kind of terminal disease. And so, like, how do we think about what we want to have to deal with as parents versus what we want to have to... This actually speaks to another interesting case. There was a, a set of embryos that were on ice for 30 years. And they were coupled, uh, quote unquote, and I'll use quote, very heavy, strong quotes here, adopted, which really they're donated embryos, right? But they use this language of, oh, we adopted these embryos. And this is a very religiously embedded language, trying to equate embryos with living people. But in any case, they have these embryos. They had infant twins born from these embryos that were frozen 30 some odd years ago. The embryos were created from an egg donor. We don't know if she signed in her consent form that her eggs could be used and redistributed 30 years later or even redistributed at all. It could be even a breach of contract. Then on the other hand, we also had you know the, the initial father who would be the sperm donor to these embryos died of ALS. ALS is a 50% genetically heritable disease, 40 to 50%. And this couple was able, and a reproductive endocrinologist, a fertility doctor, transplanted embryos from these embryos that are all that have this high risk of of having a genetic, a seriously debilitating genetic disease. Yeah, I mean, some things obviously are going to be genetically heritable and passed down, but other things are sort of these social constructs of what we think is important and the politics, procreation, you know. I'm I'm like at a loss because all of this is like so bonkers to me. I mean, you you hear about it, right? You hear about these conversations of adopting versus we're going to try infertility treatments, and you know, like from the from the parenting side, right? Maybe we should go and we should get a donor's egg. We should try a surrogate. I feel like in like the popular mind, surrogacy seems to have become more popular. I don't know if it's it's because of celebrities like. The Kardashians, for example, who have made surrogacy seem so, I guess, accessible, clearly mm -hmm. not accessible. That was in quotes because they're out in, you know, being able to pay donors huge amounts of money. But I'm really curious about this exploitation that is happening. So, right. you know, you're able to take samples from males, be sperm and for females with eggs. And there are all of these very loaded cultural connotations with the sperm and the eggs. So in the larger, I guess, maybe medical community, is there a conversation about this being exploitative? There is and there isn't. Okay, so, you know, practitioners gonna, are going to want to practice, right? Scientists want to do science. And so there's this notion of we're helping people have babies. Okay, so that focus is on helping people have babies, which is a reasonable focus because that's what they do. And donors are sort of a means to an end to solve somebody else's medical problem. In the language, in the industry, you know, in, in the egg donation industry, in the clinics and so on, 
you know, the, the language around donation, romantic donation, it, but spe- especially with egg donation, is that this gift. So the exploitation language doesn't really enter into that space because the focus is on the patient and the patient is the one who wants to have a baby. And then when the baby comes, everybody's happy about the baby. And the egg donor is happy she got her 10 grand and she can go on her merry way. Where the discussions of exploitation come out more is obviously in the social sciences. And we, it, people who focus on this like I do as an issue. And there are some people in the industry that are critical of some of the, some of the practices. The, the commodification structure in the United States is unlike any other country. Uh, there's, for example, in my research in Spain, the level of compensation is, is not at all like what it is in the United States. It's capped at 1,100 euros. In Spain, intended parents do not select their own donors. Those are selected by the physician purely based on the phenotypic match to the intended parent. And so that policy, well, yeah, it removes consumer choice. It also removes that hyper capitalism on steroids element, <laughs> literally on steroids, right? And so that kind of modifies it a little bit. But yeah, I mean, and people can say, well, you know, is it exploitation if I am, you know, a 22 year old person and I want to sell my eggs? It's my body. I can do with it what I want to. How can you say that's exploitation if it's my own bodily autonomy, my own decision? And my argument is, yes, that's true. And what the missing component is, is the informed consent piece. So if you're going through this process and you know this could happen, that could happen, and that could happen, and you can think you know, into the future of how you might feel 20, 20 years from now, and you can have this complete picture of the myriad different ways in which this can impact your life and the people around you, then, then you're making an informed decision. If all that information is absent um, and they're not getting counseled on that, they're not being told about the things that can go wrong, and most of them are not, then uh, I would argue that it's more exploitative. So I think that the key to whether it's exploitative or not is the degree of, to which they have informed consent. And maybe the developmental stage that they're that they're at, because I mean, That's if we were to toggle over to talking about brain trauma in football, we'd have the same conversation about like whether kids and their parents are in a position to give informed consent or assent at that age for something that really isn't going to have the big consequences until further down the road. I wonder if you could, so you mentioned the differences between here and in Spain. I, w- I, want, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, and I want to mention one of the other articles that you sent us. We talked about your book, but you sent us a couple articles as well. One of them was Emotion, Embodiment, and Reproductive Colonialism in the Global Human Egg Trade that's in Gender Work and Organization. And there's a table in there where you're showing where egg donors come from and where their travel destinations are. So I wonder if you could talk about this this travel for egg donation and what, what's going on there. Yeah, this is actually really interesting. And it's, it's changed a bit since COVID-19 as well. It used to, the traveling model is, for example, there might be an agency called Global Donors or whatever. And so different countries have different... Like, regulations surrounding assisted reproduction, use of donor eggs, use of surrogacy, etc. So, for example, um, you might have an agency that has, say, donors in South Africa. And so they'll, they'll fly a group of four donors to South Africa from South Africa to, in, in the past, in 2015, for example, to India, before India changed its laws prohibiting um, non-Indian nationals from doing egg donation and surrogacy in the country. So you, India used to be a, a hot spot 
for egg donation and surrogacy. And they would fly in white donors <laughs> from South Africa, from the United States to go to India and then use an Indian surrogate with white eggs, basically, uh, for antenna parents from, from wherever. So you have the commissioning of the Indian body. You know, the woman, the surrogate in India might get like $500 equivalent for, you know, nine months worth of quote unquote reproductive work, right? Whereas the white egg donor would get maybe $8,000 for a, a month's worth of work. So you have a huge discrepancy in terms of whose body is valued for what. And, and so India closed down its borders for non-Indian nationals because they were having a lot of predominantly white Americans traveling to India or, or you know, mixed race couples or whatever traveling to India to, um, to use low-cost Indian uh, surrogates with white egg donors from wherever. So once India shut down, then um, Thailand, for example, opened up. Then, so I have one, one donor that I interviewed who went from Los Angeles to Thailand to donate eggs for a gay couple in Spain. So in Spain, they have regulations against surrogacy. Well, Thailand started to offer surrogacy. This was about 2016 after India shut down. So the Spanish uh, couple, uh, same-sex male couple, went to Thailand with a Thai surrogate Los Angeles eggs, right? The egg donor ended up having serious complications while she was in Thailand and had to wait several days before she could fly back home. She had extreme bloating. She described her experience as if a knife was stabbing her in the ovary when she woke up from surgery. So, um, and she woke up and I have video footage of her waking up in excruciating pain. That has to do partially with the technique of the person doing the retrieval as well. So, so yeah, so you have people traveling across borders from various different places to other places to sort of skirt around local regulations. Thailand ended up shutting down uh, following the baby gammy scandal. There were two two scandals in Thailand. One was the baby gammy scandal where I think it was an Australian couple. They had commissioned a Thai surrogate and they used an egg donor and the husband's sperm to create embryos for the Thai uh, surrogate to carry. They discovered that one uh, of the twins had Down syndrome and the other one, a female, was healthy. So they left the Down syndrome baby with the Thai surrogate and only took the daughter who was healthy back to Australia. Then it was later discovered that the husband had also been imprisoned. He had been incarcerated um, for uh, child molesting of young girls. So there's no screening at all of the intended parents. And so this was this huge scandal. Now, the donor, the donor that had gone from Los Angeles to Thailand, she had donated eggs at this same clinic in Thailand. It was called All IVF. So she called me in a panic because she thought that her possibly her eggs were being trafficked. And she didn't know if her eggs went directly to that one intended parent that she wanted to to um, give them to the, the the couple from Spain, or if they went, you know, who knows where? Because she produced thirty five eggs. They how many how many of those eggs went to that couple, and how many went elsewhere? They only need X number of embryos, right? So they, there could have been an aftermarket, and she doesn't know. Then another another scandal with all IVF was there was a the the, the police had investigated uh, a Japanese businessman and found that he had about I think seventeen children fathered from his sperm and an egg donor uh, raised by surrogate 
through surrogacy and, and nannies in his apartment. And so he said, well, he just wanted to produce a lot of people, a lot of children to, to work in his business. But there was some concern that he might be trafficking these children as well. So for a while, there was some discussion as to whether or not he would maintain custody of the kids or not. I don't know what the outcome was of that particular case. So then Thailand shut down. But yeah, so you have eggs going all around the world. You have people traveling around the world to get services. You know, like, for example, if you can't get surrogacy in Spain and you can in Thailand, then you go there. So people try to figure out sort of where they can where they can maximize their reproductive autonomy, I guess, to some degree, and also where they can pay for it. Um, and at the same time, you know, when it comes to to egg donors, so it used to be that you'd have more egg donors traveling across borders. Well, now that vitrification, the flash freezing of, of eggs come into the come into play, and that's been mostly since about 2014, 2015, you're starting to have more of a more shipping eggs across borders and a little bit less shipping women across borders, but it still happens quite a bit. So for example, there's one um, global egg donation agency that I've worked that I've worked with and, and done film interviews with. And she had, she works with clinics in, she was working with clinics in Ukraine, not in, not anymore right now, Mexico, Los Angeles, uh, Ireland, she, India for a while, South Africa for a while, Crete, you know, all around the world. So you have this one agency and they would just send donors all around the world, depending upon where the in intended parents want to travel. So that's one, one aspect of reproductive tourism. And then the other thing is the shipping of the eggs across borders. And with the, with the COVID pandemic, because travel was uh, curtailed for quite a while, we were seeing fewer of the, of the women crossing borders and more of the eggs crossing borders. Now, one thing that's really interesting is when it comes to Spain, Spain has a policy that anonymity must be guaranteed for donor and recipient. All donations must be anonymous. Even if there's eggs being shipped. So the, the one person was telling me that they had a case where they were working with a, a clinic in Portugal. They were working with a clinic in Portugal who wanted to ship eggs from Argentina. And they had to figure out a way to make sure that the eggs from Argentina didn't stop in Spain because, so they wanted to make sure that the eggs from Argentina didn't touch ground at the airport in Spain on their way to Portugal because if the eggs had landed in Madrid by Spanish law, those eggs would automatically become anonymous, even if the donor and the recipients had a prior agreement that they would have open identity donation. So it's very interesting to me that just by virtue of landing in Spain, all of a sudden the, the status of the egg changes to anonymous from, from open. I'm so curious. So who does the burden of this massive level of organization fall on? Is it the couples? Is it the egg and sperm donation banks? Is it the doctors? That's a good question. No, almost all clinics that do global transactions like this have a team of workers who just handle the international donation aspect. So, for example, in, in the Spanish clinics that I worked in, they would have a team of international sort of donor coordinators. Most of the donors that I, that I saw in Spain were local. Many were immigrant women. Uh, so Ukrainian women were, were donating eggs, uh, South American women to some degree, Romanian women. Uh, those are the primary egg donors in Spain, as well as Spanish. But most, most, many of the intended parents might be coming from, say, France or, 
or Denmark or Germany, places where they don't have a lot of donors or places where, like Germany, where egg donation is forbidden. And so they're trying to match the local donors with the intended parents from outside of the country. And so they'll have a multilingual almost like travel agents working in the clinics, handling all the coordination aspects, holding the intended parents' hands to the process, and also a different group of people working with the donors throughout the process. So, uh, we, Diane, as you know, I could talk to you for hours, which we have done and we will continue to do. We can't do it all at this moment, however. So what I want to do to, to wrap is I want to hear more about what you're doing going forward. I know you're working on a documentary. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that and then what we can expect to hear about next time we have you on the show. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I still have a documentary in post-production that I'm still trying to get edited. It's called The Perfect Donor. And hopefully I'll get that out uh, as soon as possible. Um, you know, funding is always an issue when it comes to, to getting things edited and, and out. So that's been in post-production for a while. And I just sent off um, my book proposal to four publishers, and I've heard back from two that are sending it out for review. So that's uh, good news. And that's going to be a book looking at global egg donation, egg donation in the United States and Spain, uh, drawing upon my field research. And I'm also about to launch a project looking at um, uterine transplants in in Birmingham, in Alabama. So uh, University of uh, Birmingham, University of Alabama at Birmingham has a person who founded a, a uterine transplant program in uh, in Birmingham. And so it's the first uterine transplant program in the Southeast. So it should be interesting to see what's happening there. And when people go through the uterine transplant process, they actually have to move, you know, sometimes across country to live within 30 minutes or so of, of the transplant centers. So it's a very involved process. So I'm looking forward to um, learning more about that. But yeah, that's so exciting. There's some yeah. really, really cool stuff coming up. I'm, I'm excited to see the movie. Hopefully, it will get edited and released, and maybe we can have it screening at the HBAs or something. That'd be awesome. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Diane, it's uh, always wonderful. And of course, I'm just sitting here super happy that you're in my department. Um, <laughs> such amazing and cool work. And uh, <laughs> We're going to have you back on, but of course, I get to talk to you all the time. So, yay me. <laughs> yay you. Um, I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this should be up in a few weeks. Um, so, um, any any last parting questions, comments? No? Uh, Diane's a musician, too, everybody. She's got guitars behind her. So, look Amazing. her up and you can... You, I Usually, we ask what people do and, and have fun with, but we'll save that for next time yeah, so yeah. Uh, thank you so much much fun other than other than other than field research and travel and work well, it's kind of been focused right now but yeah hopefully you're uh, working your ass off i happen to know that you're you've been in and out of the country a lot so yeah. uh, it's very impressive yeah i added it's, up my, i've actually spent six months away from home <laughs> oh my year. goodness that's impressive yeah. especially like in our covid times spending six months away from home that's yeah. A lot. <laughs> oh, and one of her kids lives in Colombia, the yeah. country. So she has to go to fucking Colombia to visit her child. I did. I <laughs> so did there's that. over the holidays. So that was that was my break. But then of course, yeah. I love it. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I should look up some egg donation clinics and see what they do. <laughs> <laughs> Great idea. It's like you um, never just 
travel just for travel of sake? course not of course working travel you know but yes yeah <laughs> that's our life right that's yeah. just how we think yeah exactly yep. yeah how um, our brains work <laughs> i know all right, we're officially at one hour. I'm right. calling it. Awesome. Love you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Take care. Thanks, Bye-bye. Diane. Bye-bye.